When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 4th, 2018. On this week's show, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of The Athletic will be here to discuss what might have been in the NBA Finals, because what's actually happening in the series, where the Warriors are now up 2-0 over the Cavs, is way less interesting. We'll also discuss the allegation that Philadelphia 76ers general manager Brian Colangelo, or someone close to him, has been operating a series of anonymous Twitter accounts that have insulted Sixers players, revealed confidential information, and are just generally extremely weird. Finally, ESPN's Greg Wyshynski will join us to gab about the Stanley Cup final, where as we record on Monday morning, the Washington Capitals have a 2-1 lead over the Vegas Golden Knights. Joining me here in our studio in Washington, D.C. is the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, a man who is not rocking the red. It is Washington Capitals hater, Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. Not a Washington Capitals hater. Well, you're not rocking the red. That makes me a hater? It does. In this city where the, everyone is just in love with their caps and is just displaying their affection, the fact that you're not is just an insult to, to all that the nation's capital stands for. Fine. <laughs> um, before we get going today, Stefan, I wanted to put a call out to the listeners. Um, I rarely ask for anything. Sometimes I ask for you to subscribe to Slate Plus, but I rarely ask for anything. Um, and it would be very helpful if um, folks rated and reviewed the show. Um, we haven't put out a call for that in a while. So if you've been listening, we've been doing the show for like nine years. If you've been listening for that long or uh, even any fraction of that length, um, we'd really appreciate it if you uh, bang the five stars uh, and write us a nice review on iTunes. It really helps with discovery of the show with folks who haven't heard it. It's one of the main uh, factors that iTunes uses to promote our shows. And so if you're feeling in any way any sort of affection for Stefan Fatsis. Or Josh Levine. Um, please write a review. It would be really useful. Um, and it would help more folks uh, get to hear our musings. On Sunday night in Oakland, the Golden State Warriors beat the Cleveland Cavaliers 122-103 to to go up 2-0 in the NBA Finals. It was an easy win in a series that was supposed to be all about easy wins. For the Warriors, Steph Curry scored 33 and set an NBA Finals record with nine three-pointers. Kevin Durant was good. Klay Thompson was good, etc. But Game 1 of these finals did not go according to that script. So rather than linger on an expected and frankly kind of boring outcome, let's dive back into one of the weirdest games in NBA history, one that ended with what I've taken to calling the brain fart heard around the world. Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of The Athletic joins us now. And my first question for you, Ethan, as someone who's been at Oracle Arena, is do you see a brain fart or do you hear a brain fart? (laughs) 
<laughs> you know what's so funny? In this case, um, I I mostly heard the brain fart because I was watching the game in the bowels of Oracle Arena. There was some seating snafu, so I was I was sitting in this media area watching a, a video feed as opposed to watching the game. And what's so frustrating at Oracle, which in many ways is a charmingly podunk operation, is that they didn't have the live feed. What they had was the Jumbotron feed that, that you could watch in the media area. The Jumbotron feed would give it to you live, a little bit blurry, one slight catch. At moments of import, uh, a graphic would uh, go up on the screen <laughs> that would interrupt the feed telling people to make noise. And so... At the moment of George Hill shooting the free throw, the make noise graphic flew up on the screen. Um, and so I didn't I did not see the brain fart so much as I heard the brain fart. That that is true. Until the other feed kicked in, which was about eleven seconds delayed on ABC, then then I saw it. Mm. Then I saw the brain fart. It was really embarrassing when the kiss cam focused on LeBron and J.R. Smith right after that. <laughs> That's the worst. Have you seen the video? You've seen the video, Stefan, um, that just, for whatever reason, it only came out, um, I think, like, Sunday yeah. of the just, like, the feed of the Cavs bench immediately after J.R. Smith didn't know uh, that the Cavs were not, in fact, in the lead and just, like, dribbled out the clock at the end of regulation of game one. Um, we've all seen the photo of, like, LeBron gesticulating wildly at JR in the uh, instant classic, what the fuck are you doing face? Mm -hmm. um, but then on the bench, you just see LeBron sitting, stewing in silence, Stefan. And then like about a minute in to this video feed, you see LeBron, like somebody tells him or he realizes that the Cavs actually had a timeout and could have called uh, timeout. That that was really <laughs> weird to me because LeBron James certainly knew that they had a timeout. Didn't he actually try to call a timeout while J.R. Smith was dribbling toward the other basket, like Jim Marshall of the Vikings in like 1970, whatever, running the wrong way with the ball? Um, and two... The, I, I mean, this maybe is, he I knew guess, that they were a time that they had a timeout, but then about a minute and he was like, Oh, we really had a timeout. <laughs> and part two of that, Ethan, that struck me as so bizarre, and maybe not because it was really, I think, a, a, a it's, it's like a case study of like human emotion is that there was no effort to recover from what just happened. Nobody was mm. consoling J.R. Smith. LeBron James was not standing up saying, hey, guys, let's go do it in overtime. Teron Lue doesn't even like appear in this <laughs> shot. Yeah. There's yeah. no group huddle. There's no plan. The Teron Lue had already actually started his post-game <laughs> press conference to complain about them reversing the block charge. He was getting his talking points. And the order. video just runs for two and a half or three minutes. And then they get up and you hear the, the, the siren go off and the announcer say, it's overtime. <laughs> yeah, they, they really should cut that video so that Paul Simon's voice kicks in singing Hello Darkness, My Old Friend at that exact <laughs> moment, because it really was a thousand yard stare time as opposed to let's regroup and win this thing time. Um, I had a colleague last night point to it uh, after after the game. And, you know, maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves, but said this is where the series ended right here is where the series ended. Um, well, kind of no shit, Ethan's colleague. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I, I buy all that. Not 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 because I'm just jumping ahead and saying uh, probability is inevitability, but because I think that this was more of a hilarious mistake than a meaningful mistake. I, I think that this was more 
about the frustrations with JR not being focused on basketball and how um, I wouldn't say up and down because that's really just a euphemism for when somebody's been bad. When you say he's been so inconsistent, no, J.R. Smith's been pretty disappointing this season. And uh, there have been frustrations from what I've heard about his focus. And so that's what this was. But J.R. Smith is not a good two-point shooter. In fact, he's he's quite a bad two-point shooter. I think he was two of 16 going into this one in the playoffs um, on two-point shots. LeBron was with, wide open. LeBron was late, wide open. Yeah, LeBron yeah, but here's the thing. Here, here, here's the thing. You've got to consider the J.R. Smith butterfly effect, which, as I wrote, uh, is oddly not about Smith getting distracted by a monarch. It's uh, <laughs> He's only in that position because he doesn't know the time and score where he's running backwards and happens to see LeBron open from three. So I would say that that did not swing the game. It's far less meaningful than George Hill missing the free throw. It's just that some mistakes are far more hilarious and memorable than others. And there's really no excuse for what J.R. Smith did. It's total basketball negligence as opposed to missing a free throw, which we can understand just kind kind of happens. Well, I think the thing that you're not taking into account there, I agree with what you say. Like there's no certainly no guarantee that the Cavs make a shot there. But you have to think about how the hilarious mistake or what we might think is hilarious becomes meaningful if the Cavs think it's meaningful. And clearly yeah. based on the thousand yard stare that we've just uh, described, the Cavs thought this was a hugely significant moment, both because of what it meant as far as their chances to win game one, but also maybe what it told them about J.R. Smith. I mean, we can think of a thousand reasons why just beyond, you know, what merely happened on the floor, this would have a profound psychological effect on this team and on their chances of winning the series. I mean, I, I, I think as good as and as focused as LeBron James is and as remarkable a sort of memory and an analytical basketball brain that he has, he ultimately remains a human being. And how can he not be sitting there <laughs> thinking, I had fucking Kyrie Irving on my team last year. Or also I scored 51. Or also I scored I guess he 51 points. He didn't he have 50, 51 yet. Yeah. Right. But he, had, he, he had a lot. He only had 49 in regulation. Mm. I mean, I had Dwayne Wade who would have probably been helpful in a situation <laughs> like this on my team. And instead I'm surrounded by dumbasses like J.R. Smith. I, I, I just don't know how – he could even LeBron James, I don't think, could get it. And I think we saw that in game two. He did not seem to me. I mean, look, you can't score 40, 51 points every night, but yep. there was something sort of that looked materially yeah. different to me. And I don't know if I'm just projecting, we're all just projecting no, I, what happened in game one. I, I felt it too. And I, I haven't gone over the film of it, but I believe LeBron was minus 18 last night. And uh, it was a pretty efficient offensive performance or decent offensive performance. But yeah. I wonder how, how locked he, Locked in, he was uh, defensively because it, it, it seemed like they weren't drawing the massive benefit that they usually do from him being in the game. And I'm not going to reject the Cavs' lived experience. I, I, I do think that all of this matters, that it was so particularly frustrating in a unique way uh, that it could be all the more more crushing. Um, I think that some of the counterexamples or some of the pushback to how LeBron might reasonably feel, how you would feel if you were LeBron, is that this is the bed that he made for himself, that the roster looks the way it looks in large part mm -hmm. because of the influence that LeBron has had uh, over it. LeBron had 29 and 13 assists in game two. And I also have not gone back and watched uh, the film. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to put that out there. But <laughs> there were a lot of uh, potential assists uh, 
that were left uh, on the table there. Like LeBron was getting everyone involved and getting dudes open looks. The Cavs, I think, were six for 20 on open threes in game one. Um, I haven't seen the numbers for game two, but LeBron... um, Nine for for, 26 from three, I think. for, For everything that you guys are saying about like, whether the look in LeBron's gross bloodshot eye was different or he mm. came out with a different mindset or whatever in game two. Oh, he he definitely put his team in a position and very good positions in game two. And uh, defensively, the Cavs just had no chance in right. game two at all. They might have lost if um, no, no matter what, no matter if those open threes were going in, no matter if LeBron had been more aggressive. They just look totally clueless as many teams do against the Warriors and against, you know, as the Cavs have looked against like pretty much every team in the NBA in the regular season. Well, they had four players in double figures, the Cavs. It wasn't terrible. They had a lot of assists. They kept it close for three quarters. Um, but Steph Curry... Well, these were the kind of moral victories we were thinking sure. the Cavs were going to get going into the series. Except it was a blowout in the fourth quarter. Right. Um, but Steph Curry was remarkable. And the thing to me, Ethan, and you've watched him a lot more than either Josh or I have, the way he gets open is just... It's otherworldly. It's crazy. And how in tune whoever is anticipating where he is going is with his movement is really beautiful to watch. I think an underrated aspect of his play is just the conditioning. And it's all the more impressive considering that he missed a few months uh, with the MCL injury when uh, JaVale McGee fell on him. Um, but he's he's come back and uh, he's still a better conditioned athlete than a lot of the people who are trying to track him. And uh, a lot of it's that he's so feared that you can almost leverage uh, you can almost leverage that fear to where everybody is just so adrenaline packed and trying to uh, trying to stop the initial three pointer from Steph. But then they relax. It's almost like they only have that much in them. And then from there. Uh, the Warriors uh, manipulate the situation to get him open later in the possession. You've stopped him now, but now he's going to pop out. So what the Warriors did, and I I drew the the analogy of uh, almost in the way in 1917, uh, how the the British converted a destroyer, a battle cruiser, into an aircraft carrier. You know, a, a lumbering ship that couldn't sneak up on anybody and attack at the point of attack in the way that they were using a Kevon Looney or Jordan Bell by sticking them at the rim, uh, but instead making them an aircraft carrier, having them far from the fray to help a bomber uh, and help a bomber refuel. And Steph Curry, continue to follow me on the analogy here. Um, so the best just, analogies are the longest ones, Ethan. Steph would throw the ball ahead to Kevon Looney at the three-point line. Since nobody was guarding him, everybody would kind of freak out as Steph would then sprint towards Looney and uh, or sprint towards Jordan Bell and hide behind them in the corner. And with a switching defense, it was completely confusing. And so, so much of the strategy, so much of the art is just taking whatever scheme you might have, whatever uh, cleverness uh, to stop Steph and leveraging it against you. And that was a great example last series. In this series, I think it's more... Uh, just, you know, like conditioning and back cuts going one way or the other way. But I think it's also similar because Kevin Love is jumping above the three-point line. It's anything but threes. It's Kevin Love's going to switch on Steph Curry, no three-pointer at all, chase him off the line. But then Steph runs past Kevin Love into the meat of the defense, and then he pops out and later in the possession gets open. And that's a lot of what we were seeing. And that's the most amazing part of it. It's the pops out and gets open. And suddenly he's like behind some six-foot-nine dude 
the oh, aircraft in the carrier. corner at the three point line. It's like, how the fuck did he get there? Oh, he got there. He got there. Yeah. yeah I mean, the Cavs don't really have a winning defensive strategy here. I mean, they did as well as they, they can in game one, certainly. But in game two, I mean, the Cavs were swi- trying to switch. They were switching pretty much everything. And it ended up with George Hill covering Kevin Durant in the post. Yeah. And Durant is just like turning around and making like a warm up jumper over him. Like Durant mm. had a really tough time in game one. And I think, you know, based on what we saw in the Rocket series and sort of the two year long history of, of this team, the way to kind of screw with the Warriors and get in their heads a little bit is to make Durant kind of play outside the Warriors scheme and play more isolation because it just sort of screws with the Warriors' whole mentality and who they think they are. And the Cavs did that a little bit in game one. And there was all this talk in the Rocket series about Durant's fit on this team and whether they, they like each other and all that. But in game two, it's just like everybody was happy. Like, like <laughs> yeah. did pretty well. Everybody well, was yeah. getting what they want. And Dur- as, I, as I wrote after game two, Durant made everything look so easy. It's just like he could have just scored anytime he wanted. And Steph makes basketball look incredibly yeah. hard. And like he is the only one that he can do what he does. And that combination is just like unst- was unstoppable. And, and then in it. the middle there is Clay Thompson, whom you wrote about, Ethan, uh, for The Athletic after game two. Tell us about your piece. Oh, I just wanted to capture uh, the odd just myopia, the charming myopia, the the strange anti-charisma charisma that is Clay and, and, and tie it together with how he manages to play through pain. And it's almost that I, I wonder if that that productive myopia, as, a, as I'll call it, that I love basketball and I'm oblivious to a lot of what else happens in the world. I, I, I you know, I'm not too aware of it. I wonder how much of it allows a man to play through pain um, in a circumstance when others would not. Draymond was saying that he didn't think Clay was going to play. Uh, there were a lot of doubts. He was limping. He had a high ankle sprain. That's not an easy injury to play with. I, I couldn't make sense of some of uh, some of what's in my article. At one point, I, I told Clay, giving away my secrets, that. I, I, I prefer to talk to Zaza about Clay than talk to Clay about Clay. I just think that Clay's, Clay's a, a man of few words and Zaza expounds a bit better. And so uh, here, here from my article, when informed that Pachulia was speaking for him, Clay said, that's cool. I don't have much to say. Then a non sequitur, especially at the poker table. <laughs> it was just like, what? <laughs> Nobody was talking about poker. I thought we were talking about aircraft carriers. Come on, Clay. we were. Ta- th- that's completely normal. No, yeah. that's a normal apropos of everything. Uh, but the the bringing up of poker out of nowhere, um, there's just this odd uh, focus to it, and it's hard. It's hard when the cliches match up with real life, but I, I I think it does. I think Dan Martinez, who was a Warriors PR guy who now is a Hawks executive. Uh, would would say to me, notice how on on media day, the day where they bring players in for interviews and it's a big circus in October, Clay's the only one who uh, grabs a basketball and starts shooting and dribbling between uh, between interviews. He's just completely in love with basketball and won't let anything deter him from that. Hey guys, I just realized I wasn't. I'm not finished talking about game one. That's that's fine. <laughs> okay. that's I got, great. I got like two other two other things I wanted to say. Stefan, um, I have something for you about JR. Because after the game, he said something, or maybe it was the next day, he said something 
that was really poignant. He said, I told somebody right after the game that I'm glad it happened to me as opposed to anybody else on my team. It's not a situation that everybody can handle. Um, We talked after the 2016 finals about how moving it was to see J.R. Smith on the podium crying, talking about how everyone always made fun of him, how he was a champion now. People couldn't take that away from him, how he was so grateful to his parents for standing by him. Um, You know, earlier in this segment, Stefan, you were talking about how J.R. was um, a dumbass and how you couldn't believe that. that word. You couldn't believe that LeBron had to deal with somebody like this. And I think every I'm not just calling you out. I think everybody has basically been like, poor LeBron. Um, you know, the JR, you know, did this to him. Do you feel like um people have gone like way over the top with the JR stuff and it's just like gotten mean? I think that when an athlete makes a gigantic mistake in a pivotal moment then it's the inevitable no i don't think it's okay it's the inevitable outcome um i think lebron is thinking some of those things i i kind of felt badly for jr smith i didn't take any pleasure in watching him dribble the wrong way but none of us certainly expressed that when we were talking about Uh, it at the the top of the segment because it's such a colossal blunder but that 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 means he needs our sympathy more yeah but we're focused on the blunder first Blunder first, sympathy second. Correct. That's uh, that's what we stand for in this podcast. But like, if I mean, maybe this uh, is the place in the media that uh, Ethan Sherwood Strauss needs to be, because especially if you don't think it was that big a deal in terms of the game, Ethan, then I don't. You, you must think that Jr. is getting way more shit than he deserves. Uh, yes and no, because it's to me, it's less about whether it mattered and more about what it communicates about one's level of focus and professionalism in that moment. I think that's what that that that's what provokes the reaction. Now, the Internet has a proportionality problem. We don't give you if you deserve, uh, I, I suppose, a wheelbarrow of shit. We don't give you a wheelbarrow <laughs> of shit. Mm-hmm. We give you an avalanche, uh, an aircraft an avalanche carrier of shit. of shit, an aircraft carrier of shit flying from the heavens. Um, death from above uh, via shit is what uh, J.R. Smith is getting. So it, it, it's hard to parse. I think that um, he deserves a wheelbarrow of shit, but there's a diffusion of responsibility and so everybody is, or maybe even the opposite, everybody's stepping up to the plate to uh, to, to keep scoring upon him. Well, it was really um, funny. And like, who, who yeah. was any of us to say that, you know, that five millionth person in should, should stop and the first <laughs> yeah. 4,999,999 already had their swings. <laughs> in the future, in the future, we will regulate society, <laughs> uh, society better. But I, I maintain, I don't think it had a huge swing uh, in terms of the material difference. I think that if you play that out and if JR knows, he snatches the rebound, good for him, and then he tries to force up a shot. He doesn't run backwards and happen to see LeBron. I don't think that would have been his plan. Um, <laughs> and he misses and he misses the shot and it goes on to overtime and maybe it's different. Maybe uh, the, the Cavs' souls aren't crushed by it's just the... It's materially different if or even if he just catches and jumps and tries to get it up and Durant oh, swats better, it into the ninth than, row. Look, 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 look. I, I won't deny that it gives you a better chance than doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just thought that quote was really poignant. The fact that he would say, I'm glad it didn't happen to anyone else. That was that just uh, made me stop for a second. He all also right. said it's a lot of pressure depending on how you look at it. But I tell him all the time, LeBron, he has an opportunity to play with me as well. Oh, that it, was great. And he also 
lied in the immediate aftermath Correct. saying that he mm-hmm. he knew he, he knew, knew what was going was on poor poor jr um all right the wait last... wait a sec wait a second the man lies and you're saying poor jr what is what is this swing now now i'm becoming more of a, a condemner <laughs> we're done we're done with jr oh, josh is was... trying to dodge the fact that he's like a total good humor man here come on he suffered oh, enough man. he suffered enough <laughs> he deserved um, to suffer some he uh he suffered enough. All right. I also think we need to take like two minutes and then I promise we'll be done to talk about the reversal of the block charge because there's like a really interesting philosophical question here, Ethan. And you wrote about this in your game story. Um the review of that play was triggered and can only be triggered by NBA rule if there is a question about whether the defensive player is in the restricted area and that little circle by the basket. In real time, there was absolutely no question that LeBron was outside the restricted area. There's no. Absolutely wait. no question. Yeah, there is question there was question I that as well. But there is question there was question in the minds of the referees who were looking at the play in real time. They said that we were not 100% sure that LeBron was outside the restricted area. Were they like area. 92% sure? How they sure were, were they? Well, they were they were unsure enough that they decided to review it, which was the right thing to do, correct Ethan? I I I would say yes. And it was it's so funny to me. So I was watching the live feed of what was happening, but I often I, I'm not on Twitter so much during the game, and I, I tend to find out what was controversial uh, in retrospect. With JR, it was obvious, but I don't have the advantage, or I would say disadvantage, of hearing the announcers really frame the outrage of the populace. And so to me, <laughs> w- w- when I saw that happen, I thought, oh, okay, so that's, that's what triggered the review. And I don't know if I knew about um, the exact mechanism for how it gets for how it gets changed, but yeah, that was the right call. Like seeing the replay, that's an obvious block. Okay, so they reversed it to an obvious block. Oh man, I guess the Warriors caught a break that they could review that. I didn't have a sense that that was in any way controversial dude, at the moment. Did my did? Come on, I mean, I didn't know that that was the rule. I had no idea that you could review. Um, whether someone was in the restricted area. And then only if you have that review, you can then decide if it was a block or a charge. That is a weird rule. And it's the only rule like that in the rule book. And again, it's one that I didn't know existed. And based on what I've heard subsequently, like very few people knew that. And it's very, very rarely Clay, Clay Clay claimed to me that he knew it, and Zaza Zaza said that he's completely lying, and I guess that's just we'll, 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 Zaza Clay spokesman. Does Clay also <laughs> lie at the poker table? That's that's what all of our <laughs> listeners are wondering right now. But no, but 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 as I don't, <laughs> just for Clay, sorry, you you. <laughs> I was sorry, saying, you were saying, don't blame Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson for people getting. I do. About this. Stop I mean, that's ridiculous. Stop, stop complaining. My God. When I watch a, watch one of these games after the fact, I don't understand just the the utter officiousness, the strange uh, just hall monitor perspective on, on, on the game of basketball as opposed to uh, expressing a love for the sport. And I don't buy oh. that it's just – Something that comes with being a coach. UB Brown can call a game with enthusiasm. I it's just it, I'm completely confused. I'm all for honesty, but I don't understand why the NBA would want 
its product commentated on to over 20 million people by somebody who's constantly trying to tell the people <laughs> that the refs are screwing up or some grave injustice is happening. It, it doesn't seem good for the sport. And in that case, it's hard for me to really suss out. Maybe somebody will say, oh, you're a Warriors homer. I can uh, insist that I do not care. I can tell you I do not care. <laughs> but if the argument is that they reverse the call and replay review to the correct call by a process that I don't like, that seems to me to be rather flimsy and might speak to you just wanting a different outcome. Not you personally, Josh. I'm not saying that not you're flimsy. a crypto not, 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 I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you're a crypto Cavs fan, but I'm saying that it, it, it speaks to some emotionality of wanting a different outcome, I suppose, if you're angry that a call was reversed to the correct call. I'm not, I, I'm I just, not crypto, man. I'm rooting for the Cavs. But that's fine. It's a much I, better series of the Cavs win. <laughs> I will say this. It's a rule that does not make sense. If you're not going to review any other subjective foul calls, then why are you going to review this particular one. And I am on the record as being opposed to replay creep. Me too. And this is an example where if the call had gone the other way and it had been called um, a block on LeBron on the floor and they hadn't instituted a replay, I would have been totally on board and said, even though I want the Cavs to win and said, people who are complaining about this are complaining about something that's not super significant. There are other plays in the game that mattered just as much. The process that they went through is fine. These are judgment calls. How could they have possibly seen it in the moment? I would have been way, 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 way happier yeah. with that than with what transpired. What yeah, transpired what... was was bad. And it's, oh. and it's bad for, I think it's worse for the NBA than your complaint about like Jeff Van Gundy saying foul calls are bad. Um, I, I think that is minimizing the entire <laughs> scope of the strange anti-propaganda com campaign <laughs> that Jeff Van Gundy is uh, is waging, and really, and really, Mark Jackson too is getting in on it as well. Uh, look, let us let us stop arguing about this. Let us be brothers in arms because I completely agree with you. Let's bring it back to the '90s. Replay review is stupid. It sucks. It's the object lesson in this case that perfect is the enemy of good. It does not assuage anybody's. Amen, feelings. brother. It, it, it makes people far angrier than they would have been uh, than they would have been without it. I remember back in the day in the 90s, we didn't have replay review. Sometimes refs screwed up big calls. They did, and people got mad. And you know what happened? We all lived. We all lived. It was it was okay. We understood that there's human error involved at some level. Stefan looks upset. I think replay review almost communicates to people that there shouldn't be human error, and then you get angry, you get entitled, you get millennial about these outcomes. <laughs> Are you getting a, millennial, Stefan? I'm just imagining like a 79 to 74 NBA Finals game yeah. from the 90s. Yeah, yeah, That's what yeah, I'm yeah, imagining yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, I don't, don't want to go ladies, back to that. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, life is full of Tony brothers, and you're just going to have to deal <laughs> with it. You're just going to have to deal with it. You can't expect this retroactive reality policing to save you. And I would add, and uh, this is a little bit different. What I also don't like about replay review is it robs people of the moment. I don't enjoy how yes, a crowd sure. might yes. be in full throat 
about how something just happened and then they go back to the monitor and they say, oh, that thing that you were uh, cheering about when you forgot all of your problems and you just became one as a crowd. Uh, actually, it didn't happen. And we're now reversing it. So next time that happens, uh, please cheer with just a little bit of doubt in your mind. That's what we would prefer. We want you to have a little bit of doubt that we're going to go back in time um, and take the thing away. I'm not just, I'm not defending yeah. replay review here. I will defend Jeff Van Gundy a little bit. Because in a lot of cases, yeah, he's kind of a killjoy, but he's also right about the NBA's need to address problem rules. Maybe this is a problem rule. He's totally Fix right it. about fouls on the fast break. He should keep. He's talking totally about right that. about he's fouls right. on the fast break. He's also right foul. about. He's yeah. also right about James Harden and LeBron James and everybody else dipping a shoulder into a defender who is vertical and drawing a bullshit shooting foul. Agree. Oh, oh, oh. So let also- him harp on all of that. I find him entertaining, and I still because I can also juxtapose the image of Jeff Van Gundy complaining about fouls in the NBA with the image of Jeff Van Gundy with his arms wrapped around Alonzo Morning's legs. So that tends to calm me down and bring me to a good place. I now blame you as the person in the focus group who has cursed us with this instant, uh, this this constant refereeing from Jeff Van Gundy. But I do agree with Jeff Van Gundy (laughs) on uh, the idea that the Euro foul uh, needs to go. That that, that that's a true observation. I I, I agree with all that. So, um, look, there just needs to be. I guess they're, they're trying to find a balance wrong because they have Jeff Van Gundy constantly making everybody doubt everything about the NBA worse than Donahue ever did. Um, and then they throw in. <laughs> Are right, you're Jabby. done, Ethan? You're done. No, they throw throw in Steve Jabby <laughs> as the NBA's Pravda, who will never disagree with a call, and they bring him in to be the what? What's the NFL guy who? Uh, Mike who Pereira. They make him the Pereira, but Pereira will say, oh, this is right or this is wrong. Uh, Javi, in that case, I think, framed the controversy because it was an obvious block call, and he was not admitting to that. So he, he's got to protect the, uh, <laughs> the shield. his fellow colleagues, protect the shield. So you've got maybe – maybe that's the balance. Maybe that's what the NBA is up to or what ESPN is up to. Have one guy uh, killing the NBA and one guy who will never admit it. And uh, in the end, it's it's balanced for the customer. You want right. to fix it? Put Doris Burke in the booth. We're done. Uh, amen. We're done. We're done with this. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we get to Brian Colangelo and the burner accounts, and that's going to be a good one, a heads up that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus today, we're going to be joined by our colleague Christina Cotarucci to discuss how youth sports instigated her first feminist protest when she was one of the only girls on a co-ed youth soccer team. If you want to hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Ethan uh, Strauss, we couldn't get rid of you for this segment. <laughs> um, you're still here. Um, I want to go a little bit uh, insidery for people, just a uh, little bit behind the scenes action. Uh, I emailed you, I think it was on Wednesday, uh, before the NBA Finals had started. What time? And it was for four eleven and, and 10 seconds. And I asked you, what are people talking about 
Is there any interest in the NBA finals or is it all Brian Colangelo's burner accounts? And and what did you say? Uh, I said something to the I, I, basically it's all it's all burner accounts. Nobody gives a shit about the finals. It's all it's all it's all burner accounts. This and, completely taps in to human interest in a way that the NBA finals does not. Well, and this was obviously before um, the intrigue of game one, but everyone in the media, this was all anyone cared about, just the kind of gossip angle of it. And players too, like LeBron made a joke about, you know, somebody was asking him about uh, Dan Gilbert's tweets and he was like, he tweeted it from his own account, right? Like everyone in the league was totally obsessed with this story and for good reason. Um, Stefan, what are your thoughts on Brian Colangelo and the Colangelo-related burner phenomenon? You didn't even get to the part, Josh, where reporters confirmed or at least found evidence that the three mystery accounts that Colangelo had denied being connected with in any way were apparently associated with his wife's cell phone number. The last two digits, 9-1 being his wife's cell phone number. Does it really matter at this point, though? I mean, the evidence is so overwhelming that the content of all of these accounts relate to Colangelo and his interests, whether it's the Sixers or his son's basketball team at the University yeah, of Chicago. A, some of the accounts were following the University of Chicago basketball team. And there and were they overlapped were... followers in all of these accounts. I mean, the, the, this is just it, – the evidence is overwhelming. Like, the, it's just the the – the appearance of conflict or the appearance of a connection to this, it precludes Brian Colangelo continuing as the, as the, as the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers. I mean, what agent, what player is going to trust this guy going forward? I, I just can't see how it's possible. I mean, is that really crucial? I know we often say who's going to play for whoever, but the, we were just talking for a long segment about LeBron James. I mean, we all said, He's never going to go back to Cleveland ever again after what Dan Gilbert did. And lo and behold, look what happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, teams and players are fascinated with what the Sixers have. I've been in the locker room after a game where the Warriors played the Sixers, and they're all asking, how many draft picks do they have? Okay, okay, what's their future situation? That's that's ultimately what matters. I know that there isn't a lot of faith in Colangelo, and uh, people are disgusted. I know players who are disgusted by the idea of uh, lashing out at these really young players and uh, hurting their reputation. So it's it's a real thing, but I don't think that... Uh, the Sixers, if they had him at the helm, would just not be able to continue. I don't know. Uh, I, think I, I don't know. As an organization, can you imagine entrusting player personnel and contract decisions to a guy who behind everyone's well, back might be trashing other players? Well, 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 in this case, he happens to be your son if you <laughs> if you run the organization. <laughs> so I think maybe you throw it all out the window. That's another subplot is that the NBA is quite nepotistic and that, that accounts for a lot of inefficiency and uh, accounts for a lot of screw up. So, look, I don't think it's optimal, but I do think that um, perhaps and who knows who has influence over what and who has sway over what, that this could be a pretext as much as anything else. What if and I'm just throwing it out there hypothetically, not saying that I hear such a thing will happen. What if David Griffin, former Cavs GM, wants the Sixers job? And what if uh, you have it on good authority that LeBron James will come to the 76ers because David Griffin's going to be the GM there. That, to me, matters so much more uh, than the specifics of what's going on with Colangelo and the burner accounts. And maybe the burner accounts are just a lovely pretext for getting them out of there so you can uh, get LeBron James on uh, on the team. 
I was once like you, Ethan, where I thought that this was enough in a gray area where I thought, like, if you want to fire Colangelo, certainly more than enough reason to fire him. But if you wanted to keep him, you know, especially since it's looking like, you know, it was probably his wife or a lot of it was his wife. Well, wait, 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 wait. Like it was his wife? Maybe he was just using his wife's phone number. I mean, we don't know whether his wife uses this phone. We don't know what phone I user strongly, in, 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 I strongly the believe these are rich people that probably uh, have multiple cell phones. I yeah. I strongly yeah. believe at this point that Colangelo was not responsible for the tweets, at least the majority of the tweets directly. I don't believe that he did it. I didn't believe that he did it from the moment that I read the Ringer story, Why? which I can get to, I can get to in a second. But just back to my original point, I thought that it was a gray area and that you could this was more than enough to fire him if you wanted to and to that it was if it comes out that he didn't actually, you know, type the tweets himself that you could keep the guy. I have since changed my mind and decided that they need to fire this dude like uh. right away, no matter what, because I think it's less about the tweets qua tweets and more that this reveals that he is a total asshole and that he is someone who cannot be trusted. He's somebody who is remarkably petty and doesn't seem interested in the parts of his job that one should be interested the in. The serious he's, parts. He's all just interested in like settling scores and, you know, maintaining his reputation. I would, if I saw this stuff, just even if it was based on information that he gave to a family member that just like evinces his beliefs, I wouldn't want this guy representing my organization, even on the off chance that, you know, let's say Joel Embiid says, oh, I forgive and forget. Let's say LeBron James says, oh, it doesn't affect my free agency. If there's like a 2% chance that that's not right, like why is this guy doesn't seem that great at his job? Just replace him. Like what? what's the loss? Yeah, it's funny. I thought this initially was 12 Angry Men where you were going to uh, defend uh, Colangelo, <laughs> but now you've completely turned and want him out of there. And like I said, I can't argue against that. I think that probably the best call would be to move on. I, I would just also say that in the NBA, people can they can persist in situations that are suboptimal. And yeah, it would be uncomfortable with him remaining at the helm and perhaps not the best option. But the Sixers would ultimately uh, muddle muddle through if it happened. Um, and I do think in NBA culture, uh, the operating assumption is, is that your family member reveals uh, confidential information. I know Amin Al-Hassan has talked about this, ESPN's Amin Al-Hassan, about somebody with the sons uh, whose son revealed uh, sensitive information and everybody felt badly, but ultimately the mother had to be fired. And that's just how it goes. So I think the rule is, even if your family member puts it out there and it's not your fault, it is your fault. You just yeah. can't, you can't let that happen. Um, and I do think that's the rule. In, ultimately, in, in ultimately, this man is supposed to be in charge of this organization and maintaining some sort of level of sophistication and maturity and protecting confidential information and confidential thoughts and ideas about player personnel, about the future of the franchise, about strategy, about developments, about performance. And those were all violated. And whether Brian Colangelo's fingers were on his phone typing those tweets, to me, is irrelevant because clearly it was somebody very close who had, as you said, Josh, access to the general manager's thoughts and ideas that revealed them publicly, whether it was him or his son or his family or his wife or his father. 
who is denied being involved in this in any way, Jerry Colangelo. It's we all, don't know. Well, we should be clear at right. this point. Well, we don't know. We who don't did know. This. We don't know who did this. Yeah. But the, the the bigger irony here is that the Colangelo family and Jerry Colangelo, owner of the Phoenix Suns, head of USA Basketball, has been in the NBA for decades. Highly and decades. respected. Right. <laughs> um, these guys were brought in because Sam Hinkie was the problem. Right, bringing disrepute to the organization. organization. All right, just my to close that loop, and then I'm going to get into my thoughts on the journalism that was that was done here. Um, I think the bigger issue here is the way that the the sharing the confidential information is bad. The way that it was deployed, which is to win arguments online with Twitter eggs and to make Brian Colangelo look good and his predecessors and successors look bad. It was all about Colangelo reputation management online. It had nothing to do with anything that should matter to an NBA team. With it was like this, 200 this guy, people. This guy is just Not all – this guy is just like – all out for himself and and making himself look good and you know making sure people know that his collars are awesome on his shirts. Well, yeah, um, uh, but got some good shirts. Let me talk about the Ringer story for a second because I'm curious what you guys think. Um, it was obviously a fantastic scoop. It was a story that everyone in the entire NBA was like talking about instantly, and it like changed the course of the league potentially. It's a huge story and a huge coup for them. Um, I was not that um, – I, I don't think they nailed the story. And I was like slightly disappointed by that because I feel like if there had been like a couple extra steps taken, it could have been totally nailed down. But at the point um, that the story came out, the ringer just – you know, they had some caveats in there. This may or may not be Brian Colangelo. Um, but, you know – Ben Dietrich quotes his source, an anonymous source who Ben Dietrich still doesn't know who it is, saying, to me, there is no conceivable world where this is not Brian Colangelo himself, not his wife, not his son, not his dad. And Ben Dietrich just basically allows his source to say that. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't say, this is the evidence that I have that's like 100% why it can't be his wife or his son or his dad. He just basically lets the source stipulate that. And I just had a hard time, you know, reading the story, understanding why that would be the case. Like, you know, we know that Roger Goodell's wife defended him online with anonymous accounts. We know that Kevin Durant defended himself um, personally online with burner accounts. We've seen, you know, it go both ways. But there just wasn't any, um, you know, ironclad proof at that point, for them to justify coming out as hard as they did, even with those caveats saying well, this was Brian Colangelo. You're, you're kind of right, but I don't think maybe maybe doing that would have made the story more airtight journalistically, but I think it would have not been as big a story because there's almost an irony here or a paradox where journalism is about uncovering secrets, but people love a little mystery. Mystery is part of the, uh, the sauce that yeah. made this – no, they, they, the what's going on here, who is it exactly, is it him, is serial as good if we just have definitive proof that Adnan did it? I, they I didn't, don't think They so. didn't press on it, Ethan. They didn't – there's stuff that they could have done. They weren't the ones who found the 
you know, I'm, that, I'm not saying you're wrong. And I'm not <laughs> saying this is an intentional byproduct. I'm just saying that there is something to this idea that that it was a little bit up in the air that we could all speculate that reddit could get on the case and try to investigate it further the way that it was done without every loose end being tied together i think made the story it amplified it and made it a bigger story that's I all think i'm if noting. i were editing the story i would have taken that quote out the no conceivable world where this is not brian colangelo i think if you take that quotation out there were enough caveats and enough rigorous explanation of how the ringer and Ben Dietrich got to this point, comparing followers, examining individual tweets, examining which accounts only followed and didn't tweet at all. Um, it was pretty rigorous in terms of it was pretty thorough was. in analyzing the way these accounts are connected. It was, it was like a last mile problem. I mean, they got yeah. 95% of the way there, which is why I was a little bit, Disappointed. And I don't mean to like lecture or harangue, but I think it's important, you know, for me to remind myself and for everyone who does this kind of work that you need to question things that you want to be true um, and think of alternative hypotheses because it's a better story if this is Brian Colangelo doing it himself. It certainly seemed like it was Brian Colangelo doing it himself. There's a lot of you can certainly put all of the like, you know, push pens and string on the string board together in a way that it looks very clear that it's Brian Colangelo doing this. But I just didn't get the sense from the story, especially because of the inclusion of that quote, which wasn't challenged, that they had considered the alternate theories. And I think if they had gone down that pathway, it would have been a better reported story, a, a deeper story, and one where they could have maybe gotten the answer. Um, rather than having the Sixers do this investigation. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten it, but um, it seems possible would you, to me. Would, would, would you have liked if, before the story was completed, uh, Dietrich had done almost a TMZ and showed up to the Wells Fargo Center <laughs> and with a, with, with, a, with a camera just, just, just sort of, I, I wouldn't say a cost, that sounds aggressive, but just went up to, to Colangelo and started pelleting him with these direct questions. Would you, do you think that that would have been a, a good methodology? I kind of think so. I, I would have loved to have seen that before. <laughs> now you're not going to be able to get at him. But before shit hit the fan, maybe that would have been the way to put so the So you mean instead of going to the Sixers PR department? No, no, no. no. You, you, you went to the Sixers PR department. You, you, you did all that. Now show up, uh, show up to the premises. And maybe the way this broke, maybe the Sixers season was already over and it wouldn't be so easy to catch him but I, I just wonder if that would have been the way to do it just walk up to him uh metaphorically grab him by that oversized collar and uh and and just just ask away i i wonder if that would have clarified anything uh <laughs> that might have been entertaining i don't think it would have done what i am looking to do here there was just just <laughs> no immediately it, it, after it, it, that, that, that's why we're talking past each other yeah. you're talking about the responsibilities, the holy responsibilities of the fourth estate and what is uh, prudent journalism. And I'm just saying, how do we make this circus even more snazzy? How do we entertain the people? That's, I'm, I'm why, GT, that's why we GT go so well together. That's why. Yes. I mean, I have to say. The, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a regular Van Gundy and Javi. But yeah, you were saying. The approach was good journalistic. I think they were very smart to, send, to give them the two accounts to see how they that would respond was very to the smart. other three accounts. So they tell them about the two accounts and the Sixers or somebody shuts down or mysteriously the other three accounts get shut down. That was really smart. And that does go 
some distance toward proving some connection among these accounts. Yeah, I think I, I, think I said that. It doesn't prove that, anything. You're right. It was and, a great, great story. And I think they just kind of did not stick the landing. Right. That's, what that's you what wanted was more reporting to have been done, more sourcing to get to someone whom you can trust, who is not anonymous the way the, the tipster is anonymous in the story, to say, yeah, I know that that was Colangelo. It just feels to me like there was a little bit more sleuthing that could have been done. And it, as a reader, it felt like they thought that they had cracked it and thus there wasn't any need to press on it anymore. They didn't need to you know, see what the recovery phone number on the account was. They, you know, other people found connections to folks on the follower list that um, worked with Brian Colangelo's wife, and maybe that would have pointed them in that direction. It just felt like, again, as a reader, I don't have any inside information, that it just looked like they thought the story was done. And mm. that's, I, I, that's my thought. I, and, 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 and I counter that there just wasn't enough reckless speculation just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just to entertain me. Just to entertain me, not enough asides about uh, high society Toronto, which uh, is is just a strata that I don't think I've thought about. But you know, you have your perspective, more responsible journalism, uh, getting the facts straight. I have my perspective, more accusations, more blood in the water, and uh, we come to an agreement at some point. It works. Ethan Strauss uh, works for the Athletic, and uh, you should totally subscribe to the Athletic if you believe in the journalistic values that Ethan <laughs> has espoused throughout this podcast. Uh, Ethan, it's always uh, great to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure. You guys, uh, thanks so much for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The pregame ceremonies for the Vegas Golden Knights have been elaborately choreographed productions featuring sword fights and lasers and digital cannonballs and Michael Buffer and Imagine Dragons. Here's how it went down at the home of the Washington Capitals before Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Finals on Saturday night. And now, here to announce tonight's starting lineups. Please welcome longtime Caps season ticket holder, <laughs> the no. famed the famed catchphrase, are you as excited as Pat Sajak? Yes. The Caps were excited, though. They beat Vegas 3-1. to one. They lead the series two games to one. Game four is on Monday night in D.C. after the taping of this podcast. Greg Wyshynski of ESPN is on the line with us now. He's at Morning Skate at the Kettler Ice Arena in Virginia. Hey, Greg. I uh, very much am looking forward to the scintillating intro to game. Four, in which I imagine Wink Martindale will be reading out the lineups for both yeah. teams, uh, or or through a is through a seance. I don't know if he's still around or not. But game show hosts are obviously the best response to Vegas style pyrotechnics, aren't they? 
he's still alive. Wink Martindale. He's uh, I I think he's probably a uh, Nashville Predators fan. Oh, really? <laughs> given that he's from Jackson, Tennessee. Hmm. But who knows? You know, the NHL playoffs are all about surprises, Greg. They certainly are. And what a surprise to have uh, uh, Pat Sajak in a Capitals pullover reading out the starting lineups. They had a, they had a week to plan for this. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, and, and the best thing I, I read the entire night uh, to encapsulate the difference between the Vegas opening and the Washington opening by far was Pat Sajak equals Reno. That's good. I like that. <laughs> that is good. The biggest little game show host in the world. <laughs> All right. The Capitals have the best player left, Alex Ovechkin. They have the momentum after that game three. They were pretty dominant in game three. And they've got the better storyline. Years of failure, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I love the term morning skate, Greg. There's something earnestly hockey about morning skate. What is your view from morning skate? Uh, enthusiasm, I would say. You know, the thing about this Capitals team, and I'll give you some pushback on them being the better story because a team created out of whole cloth in the last year trying to win a Stanley Cup for a, a city that's used it to heal its, its, itself after a massive tragedy is a pretty good story, too. Um, yeah, but it's the expansion thing is just preposterous. Okay, well, then, fair <laughs> enough. There is that caveat. Um, the, the thing about the Capitals that I find really interesting can be boiled down, down to one play in Game 3, which is when Braden Holtby, their goaltender, uh, turned the puck over to uh, Thomas Nosek, a fourth-line player for the Golden Knights. He scores, he cuts the Capitals' lead, and in years past, the entire bench would have gone to the sunken place. Uh, for the Capitals. They, they, they would have wilted. They would have folded. Doubt would have crept through the arena. An impending sense of doom would have permeated from the stands. But instead, they kept playing. It didn't even phase them. This, this moment that would have been a pivot to, to bad things in every other playoff I've ever covered for this team, they just brushed their shoulder off of it. And, and I think that is the exact attitude that they've had throughout these playoffs. Go down two games to the Columbus Blue Jackets come roaring back to win that series. Play your arch nemesis Pittsburgh. You've only beaten once in franchise history and you beat them. They've faced all sorts of adversity. They're a completely different team psychologically than I've ever seen. And that's why they're here. I wanted to talk about Braden Holtby's save from game two, which has already been immortalized in flip book form. I was just uh, watching that this morning it was the standout play of the playoffs this far. Some people are calling it the greatest save ever. Um, it certainly saved the game for the Capitals in game two, uh, prevented it from going in overtime where they could have gone down to uh, nothing in the series. Can you walk us through what happened in that save and also just given uh, your years of experience watching uh, goaltending, goal uh, where did it rank for you? Well, so the puck kind of took a weird bounce in the Vegas attacking zone and kind of went from one side of the rink to the other, uh, where it was collected by a Vegas player who then sent it back the other way to Alex Tuck. Now, Alex Tuck is a pretty decent goal scorer, big-bodied power forward, came over from the Minnesota Wild. I was at the game, and, and the only way I could describe it is... The net looked empty. I mean, it was as gaping a wide-open net as you could imagine. And it was as if he had a layup. Uh, it, it, you know, it's the only way you could describe it. Suddenly, Holtby lurches back to his right with his stick and manages to block the shot. Now, in that moment, and in hindsight, 
you say to yourself, well, why didn't Alex Tuck elevate the puck? Because if that puck is a few inches off the ice, that's a goal. And the thing is, is that it's such a bang-bang play. You're just looking to get it into the net as quickly as possible before the goaltender can do anything about it. Uh, so I talked to Tuck after that and asked him, you know, how it felt to be Ralph Branca to Bobby Thompson, basically. And he said, hey, you know, it's, it's one game. It's, uh, it's a hockey play and a game full of hockey plays, and you just have to move on. But, I mean, he's been immortalized uh, in one of the biggest and cl- most clutch and emphatic saves in Stanley Cup final history. Uh, the fact that it happened in game two probably doesn't mean it's going to mean as much. It'll be a footnote to history rather than being the definitive play in the series. But it still was one of the most incredible saves that I've ever witnessed in person. Stefan, the thing that was really notable for me is that it um, was just kind of a great reminder of like how we use visual cues especially in hockey, and maybe it's just because I'm more of an inexperienced hockey watcher, to kind of tell what's happening on the ice. Because all of the cues were there that said goal. It was guy in front of the net. It was empty Empty net. net. And it was fans um, in Vegas celebrating because they saw all the same things that I saw. It was a goal. goal. Everything about it said goal. And we should mention also that it would have tied the game at that point too. So I mean, yeah. it was everything was on the line on that on that shot, and uh, and Holtby stopped it, and it was it was remarkable to see. It also demonstrates the outrageous flexibility and mobility that National Hockey League goaltenders possess, and also the total serendipity that so often turns hockey games, especially playoff hockey games. I mean, you know, a quarter of an inch up or down with the random throw of his stick across the goal mouth and the puck ricochets and deflects into the net. Yeah. And the randomness extends beyond that one play too. I mean, Braden Holtby didn't start the first two games of these playoffs. He had a lackluster finish to the regular season. Uh, Philip Grubauer, his, his backup goalie was given the starts in games one and two of the first round against Columbus. Holtby came back in game two and has started every game since. And has progressively gotten better as the playoffs have gone on. He pitched. He's one of only five goalies in NHL history to pitch shutouts in games six and seven of a series uh, to close out the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning, and he's continued this play uh, on into the Stanley Cup Final outside of an anomaly that was game one where both teams just were super amped up and put 10 goals on the board. Right. Um, the other play that I want to point to happened in game three, and it was the first goal by Alex Ovechkin. Um, he was not in his customary spot out on the left circle or at the point on a power play, he was mucking it up in the crease and mucking it up in the crease. And he, (laughs) I mean, it was an amazing, amazing play. I mean, he, he was on his backhand diving, tripping over somebody and flicking the puck up over the, the uh, Marc-Andre Fleury and into that. It was a terrific play. And I thought it epitomized how Ovechkin has been playing. This dude is motivated to win the Stanley cup. The thing about Ovi that's interesting, we have a, we actually have a roundtable on this on ESPN.com about whether there's been a material change in the way he's played or whether it's just the perception of people who never gave him the proper credit as a postseason performer finally coming around to the idea that he is this good. I'm kind of in the middle of those. I, I think that he has always been a playoff performer but has never been given the credit for it. Uh, his stats have always been, always been sterling. The effort's always been there. Uh, has he played with a bit more of him and vigor this postseason? For sure. He, he is uh, right now at, at his highest points per game average 
since 2010, so things are going really well. The difference for me with Ovechkin is the fact that the things that he's doing are coming at very important, impactful times. Right. Like, uh, he had, a, he had a, a hand in three game-winning goals against the Penguins, so the Capitals finally get past them. Uh, he scored two back-breaking goals in games one and two on the road, wins at Tampa. He scored the first goal in game seven against the Lightning, and statistically that basically handed the game to the Capitals. And then, of course, in game three here in Washington, it's uh, as Barry Trotz, his coach, mentioned, it's only appropriate that Alex Ovechkin scores the first goal in the first Stanley Cup final game in Washington in 20 years. So it's not necessarily that he's done remarkably different things uh, as far as the mechanics of his game, but for whatever reason, the timely the timeliness of his contributions has been much more evident and much more important this time around than in previous postseasons. I'm gonna muck it up in the crease a little bit here <laughs> with my with my next point. Um, I think there's a connection, sort of back to the Holtby save. Um, and you mentioned Greg about just how just very small things can make uh, dramatic turns in the NHL playoffs. And I connect that to the response that we've seen here in D.C. where people are just going bananas for this team. (laughs) And I think that there's a connection there between hockey being a kind of resolutely local sport and these sort of magical runs that you see in the NHL playoffs. You know, we we talked about how in game one of the NBA finals, it was like totally unpredictable. And th- there's a connection that can be made there about a couple of things that could have gone differently. And, and that game could have oh, gone, gone so a different way. Really? Um, could have gone differently? It could have, maybe. <laughs> but generally in the NBA, the things that you expect to happen end up happening. And in the NHL, it's just totally different. Um, and the fact that you're on kind of like a journey with your team and the fact that they make it to the Stanley Cup final, it just feels like magical realism in some way. And I think that's especially the case in D.C. because of what we already talked about and how this team just always managed to pull defeat from the jaws of victory. And I think just what we've seen like on the street outside uh, the arena after Game three, it feels like it's all connected to me. Right. And and it, it goes beyond that, too. I mean, most Washington Capitals fans are also Redskins fans, are also Nationals fans. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a crossover with the Wizards as well. And the totality of the sports scene here in D.C., I mean, they've been, the uh, you know, the losingest city, I think, overall since the early 1990s for, for cities that have the four major sports. Uh, there's just not been anything to really kind of hang your hat on. Even the time the, the Caps made the cup final, uh, they got swept by the, the Detroit Red Wings. So there's this sort of catharsis happening for the D.C. sports fan uh, through the, the Washington Capitals run in this, in this playoffs. And, you know, the, like you said, I mean, it is – the only way you can really understand it is Brian McClellan, the general manager of the Washington Capitals, walked into Game 7 against the Pittsburgh Penguins last postseason, a, a game that the Capitals ended up losing. And he felt like, you know, it was going to be a bad night. He felt the negativity in the building even before the game started because there was this notion, not only from the fans in the stands, but also from the bench, that they were already de- already defeated. And to have this moment where they finally get past Pittsburgh, they're unburdened by that, and now they're back in the cup final, and they're there for the first time in the tenure of Alex Ovechkin and Nicholas Backstrom and 
uh, John Carlson, Yevgeny Kuznetsov, all these players that have become beloved figures for this fan base. Uh, there is a sense of, of, of celebration just in the sense that they're here, but now that they can taste it, <laughs> you know, they don't want anything else but to, to seal the deal. And we mentioned Ovechkin before, and like, it does come back to him ultimately, the idea that we could be watching what might end up being the best goal scorer in the history of the National Hockey League. There's a chance he could catch Gretzky. But could really? you, oh yeah, if, if you look at his durability in, in games played, and you look at his offensive output, and you kind of game it out for, for how many years he might still have left in him and, and his productivity, statistically, there's a chance he could catch Gretzky. Statistically, there's a very good chance he's going to finish as the second leading goal scorer in NHL history. But there's an outside chance he can catch Wayne, which is incredible. But if he ever did that, you know, no matter where he ends up being in the, in the totality of, of goal scoring greatness in the, in the NHL, the last thing you ever want is for him to go into the Hall of Fame and have some Canadian writer being like, yeah, but where's his ring? Yeah, it's the last thing any hockey fan wants, right? So there's been this sort of movement afoot through the years, um, it, it, and very much recently, where hockey fans just want to see Ovechkin win. They want to see him raise the cup. They've seen his peers do it. They don't want that caveat to exist where he is, you know, Dan Marino or somebody like that. They, they want him to have the glory and the stats to go along with it. Everyone is so nice in hockey. You know, everyone, they want Ovechkin to succeed. It's well, very sweet. Oh, no, but they're, you see, we see they're not, though, because he had to be tortured for the better part of a dozen <laughs> years. I mean, you know, you had to have people calling him. You know, there was one guy who wrote for the Hockey News that said, that said the Capitals should let him go to the KHL in right. Russia because his time here was done. Like, there's no question that Ovechkin has been put through the ringer uh, to get to this point. But, but like, they like, should have left him open uh, in the expansion draft. Let him go to Vegas. Precisely. Yeah, with his old GM there. But that's the thing. Like, you know, you, 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 you go through that process and you, you, you're tortured. You see the Penguins beat you three times and win the cup each time. And, you know, Sidney Crosby, the guy that, who's been your arch rival throughout your career, doing it, you know, three times to you. You go through that and you, and, and to get to this moment where then it becomes you know, all the more uh, incredible and all the more vital and all the more joyous if, if the Capitals actually pull this thing off. The, the one sour note on the Capitals to me has been the play of Tom Wilson. Um, he was suspended for three games during the Penguin series for an illegal hit to the head. Um, he's been involved in a lot of nasty hits. And yeah, there's nasty hitting in hockey, but his play and the... The, the lack of um, attention to the NHL's concussion protocol seems to be a real problem in this league. Brooks Orpik took a huge hit in game three, came right back into the game on his next shift uh, without it appeared being uh, assessed in any meaningful way. And up in Canada, Rick Westhead, journalist, has gotten a hold of testimony from NHL executives in a lawsuit uh, filed by former players about concussions and CTE, in which the commissioner of the National Hockey League, Gary Bettman, and his subordinates and team owners display a remarkable and implausible level of, of deniability um, about the existence of CTE, not to mention the connection between getting hit in the head a lot and developing CTE, which many former NHL players have in fact done. The Wilson stuff is is divisive, to to be sure, um, in the sense that, you know, the, the, every time now that he has a hit that's borderline, and 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 the hit that he put on Jonathan Marsh so earlier in this postseason shouldn't have been a suspension and wasn't, 
but every time he lays out somebody now, he's he's now the 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 guy who is singled out by hockey fans who bemoan that level of physicality. And yeah, he toes the line of, of legality for sure. And and he definitely stepped over it when he broke uh, a Penguins player's jaw in the semifinals. Um, but you know, I listen. It's 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 a generational divide, right? Like I grew up watching the Patrick Division. I grew up watching a different brand of hockey. I completely understand the uh, attention given to players like Wilson and and the the injurious nature of their games. So I get that. But I just think that sometimes the overcorrection from fans towards a player that plays that rough and that physical can be too much and and unfortunate. As far as the Rick Westhead stuff goes, that stuff's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, you had a you had an email that was detailed in this report from Mike Murphy, one NHL executive, to Colin Campbell, who was a, a very highly ranking NHL executive back in 2007, in which Mike Murphy said it'd be better for the league if we called fewer major penalties on elbowings because major penalties get the media's attention more than minor penalties does. And you just are, if this, could you imagine if this was the NFL and like there was a, a letter between NFL executives saying we have to stop calling so many personal fouls because people notice them more, <laughs> you know, despite the fact that they're completely warranted and, and, and they're plays that are causing concussions and potentially, you know, debilitating dementia-laden diseases later on in life. I mean, that's the that's the sort of the where we're at with the level of embarrassment right now at the NHL with these reports that are coming out and this testimony that was been uh, reported by TSN. And uh, I don't know if there's necessarily a smoking gun there that's going to cost them a lawsuit, but I know for a fact that it is a huge embarrassment to the league to see how they've handled this this stuff in the past publicly and how they continue in Gary Bettman's case to deny the existence of CTE now. Greg Wyshynski, if he weren't a hockey writer for ESPN, he could be a game show host. <laughs> I'm certain of that. Oh my Greg. God, I, I have the hair for it right now at least. Thank you for <laughs> mucking it up in the crease with us, Greg. Anytime, boys. Thanks. All right, we are leaving you after ball-less this week, but we will be uh, after ball-rific next week. Is that a promise, Stefan? Promise. It's a guarantee. After ball-full. Ball-full. Um, that is our show for today. And why am I even apologizing? Was I apologizing? A little bit. We had a really good, strong, strong segment this week. It's a great show. Our producer is Patrick Fort. He did a great job producing this episode, I thought. To listen to past shows, which have all been great, and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget the five stars. Give us a good review on iTunes. There was a show like in 2014 that I think we mailed it in. Yeah, but so long ago. I think that's been memory hold. Um, don't mention that in the review. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.